Sorry. Oh, God. We're recording. Oh, God. That's the good stuff. Are you okay? I feel like every episode starts with... Firewater, too. That sounds even better. It just tastes like I just drank pure hell. So today we're talking about why you don't know of many young composers. Now that's not to say that, I mean, I'm sure there's people in our listening audience who are really into new music and they know a lot of people, but for even the average classical music fan, new music fan, maybe not, but classical music fan, you probably don't know many or any up and coming composers. I hate to use the term young composers, which is something I try not to do on this show on purpose because that is part of the problem. That's just anyone under 60. Well, this brings us right into it, doesn't it? So there are new music composers that people have heard of. There's Philip Glass. Most people have heard of Philip Glass. He's still alive. He's still making music. John Adams, most mm-hmm. a lot of people have heard of. He's still alive, still making music. More than still alive, I should say. You know, they're doing good work and they're around. So there are living composers, but if you notice... All of them have a few things in common. They're all over 60. Most of them, the vast majority of them, are white men. That's not to say all. There are people of all types doing good work. But there's a bit of a tilt, specifically in terms of age. So how come in every other genre, the people making, the tastemakers and the people making changes and making waves in their genre tend to be in their late 20s or 30s or in towards the beginning of their career arc. But in classical music, you never hear from younger people making or defining a movement or creating something that's appreciated at the same level as at a fully professional level. That's my question. Well, when you say majority are older white men, you mean in terms of Traditionally, yeah. So I feel like during the last at least decade or two, that's been shifting. Well, things have been skewing a little bit younger in terms of the level of success that people are afforded and can access. Like the Pulitzer Prize in the last few years has notably incorporated a lot of younger folks. This last year, Ellen Reed won the Pulitzer. She's about, Mm -hmm. I think, 35-ish. Andrew Norman was one of the runners-up. He's 40. Mm -hmm. Last year, Kendrick Lamar, he's 31. That's a whole other issue. But the other nominees, Ted Hearns, 36-ish. Michael Gilbertson is 32-ish. So they're getting younger and younger. And that all really started around 2013 when they gave the award to Caroline Shaw, who was the youngest person to ever win mm-hmm. when she was 30. However, it all started seemingly after that. Because if you move further back, none of nothing in that age, age range is really present. So it seems like a bit of a concerted effort on their part. But well, yeah. the, the Pulitzer is kind of like, it's not a lifetime achievement award, but it also is. Which right. is why it's a little odd when it is going to younger and younger folks. As opposed, It's a little odd that that's the thing, going to younger and younger folks. And not, say, a Grammy for, you know, best 
new composition, which is a Grammy that gets given out every year, mm. or why classical music seems to be the only genre that doesn't have a best new artist category. Because something about the way we treat our career path, or why this genre treats the career path of a composer, leans on treating new artists like students, or treating them like children. I would just say, I don't think that it's necessarily just uh, musicians or composers, though. I mean, for example, if you take like medical school, you typically feel like it skews to be in the older range or mid to older range before you are maybe, what do you want to say? That's true. But like, I guess there's one way to look at it in that composing classical music is a really refined skill set and takes a lot of... Well, it takes a lot of doing... Too, yeah, I think. but at the same time, I feel like most music at a at a high level, not necessarily writing music, but, you know, playing at a really high level or, hell, engineering the music at a really high level for recording or anything like that takes a whole lot of doing and a whole lot of learning also. And it's a lot less life or death than the reason we, than medicine. That's the reason we train doctors so hard is so that they know it everything there is to know about the subject well, yeah but i think that's the same argument for composers mm-hmm. i feel like at the same time then if you're training someone to know everything about the subject that statistically seems more likely that you would win these type of awards and get that recognition so you feel like all the people getting the most recognition are older i feel like there are very few see i, I very feel like very few younger composers and when i say younger i mean i'm, I'm talking about Let's think about this on the same scale as other genres. Like Kurt Cobain's entire career happened before he was 27. Even people that are, big air quotes, taken more seriously by people like Alex Ross, who are in the the pop rock world, like Radiohead, like they were doing their more serious work starting out when they were like 25, 30. Well, I also feel like they get a much younger fan base because it's a much more common genre. I don't think that it's younger generations are exposed to it. So there's not an, uh, much of a corporate value to promoting a younger composer. If there's no strong fan base, that's going to bring in this, the, the tickets. So if you have Ariana Grande, I wouldn't say that I, I love Ariana Grande, but I wouldn't say she's an esteemed musician, but she definitely is very popular because she has a very strong younger fan base. So do you think yeah. the artist's age matches <clears throat> their fan base? Uh, I think to an extent, I'm not saying that there's not, various ages that love Ariana Grande. I'm sure there are, but I feel like the, the core of her, her, the core of her fans are going to be the younger social media generation, the Twitter users, the, the Instagram users. I just feel like that's, and that's how it's marketed a lot of the time. I feel like that's why there's so much of push of, I mean, half, I mean, she has like how many younger performers have set the record for Twitter followers. I don't think it's a helpful analogy because or parallel because a pop artist their ability to dance and look pretty is equal to their musical ability and if if Beyonce had a disfiguring burn her music career would be over because Seal okay name a second (laughs) and what's Seal been up to well I saw him at Ravinia uh, in Chicago not that many years ago but it was really good it was better than i thought it was gonna be but but i i understand your point there's a there's a physicality and there's an image that is 
well, yeah, almost I mean, at the level of musicians. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, or the it's, it's the it has to be at the same caliber because I I assume that these pop artists, if they can't if they can't learn um, a dance routine, if they can't learn the choreography, they they probably don't ever get to the next level where they would be launched into into uh, stardom. But the idea with composers or people who write art music is that you're growing as an artist and you're achieving maturity the older you get. I mean, there's a difference between Brahms at 60 and Brahms at 25. These days, though, it seems like there is no there is no Brahms at 25 right now. There it seems well, like the attention is there just might not be. Paid. We don't know them. Well, I mean, but <laughs> when Brahms was 25, I feel like he was still having music done. Well, that's because that was such a that was a much more common art form, I feel. I mean, it was a lot more pervasive people. I mean, what other what other genres are as I'm saying in, in that time he was writing what was in the main consciousness of music. I don't know how popular music. that music was at it's, the time out for in terms of performance. I think it, in the home, like people playing in their living room together. Yeah, but people weren't going out to concerts all the time. Correct. But I just mean that if we're going to compare classical music's perception and its connection to modern day, just modern day, everyday lifestyle, there's it's a much stronger connection than it is today. Fine. Which is a whole yeah. other topic, but... Even if we're not comparing it to popular music or popular artists, isn't it weird that we are we don't give credence to younger voices in the same way that... Or not even not in the same way, but at all. There's no money in it. I hate, no to be, I hate to be cynical, this. but if you think uh-huh. about it, think of all the, the stars that came from the Disney Channel. Disney pumps out young stars when they know that they're probably going to be successful because they're going to make Disney a lot of money. No, but I'm we don't have an organization that. that does that. So that's why I feel like they get a lot more support and a lot more uh, exposure because they have the backing of money. I don't really, I'm not thinking about it in those terms though. I mean, I mean, there's not even, doesn't have to be actors or performers. It could be film director, a screenwriter could put something together that is taken seriously. If the quality is there much younger. I mean, it, it all comes down to money, right? Because there's a donor base and they need to be satisfied. And that's why you see the same operas played every single year and the same symphonies played every year because... No one's willing to take the, a risk. No, well, and also the Met has to raise $150 million in donations every year. Mm-hmm. And if they miss that mark, they're fucked. So they're not going to dedicate half their season to promoting the works of... People that their donor base doesn't care about. It's sad that at the end of the day, a lot of this comes down to money and, and a very business aspect. But that's, I mean, that's, there's still an organization that needs to have an operating budget for the next year. So it's, I do understand the, the point I think that you're, where you're coming from, like the, the, mm-hmm. the aspect that you're saying is that I do feel like there's a sense of when a younger composer has an opportunity, it's almost seems that it's, sometimes not by everybody but i feel like sometimes it's treated as a novelty because i was actually having a very good conversation with a friend of mine yesterday and we were talking about call for scores for orchestra readings which is a whole nother thing in and of itself but we were just talking about how sometimes the impression that you get is when you win one of these things it's a a round of applause you're getting your piece performed by an orchestra and then they crank it out and then you're out the door yeah. And it's almost and it's, it's a novelty. It's like you, you we just gave this experience. I'm not saying that's not great. I think I mean it's very hard to get an 
orchestra piece performed because it's just it's such a logistical nightmare to have that many performers mm-hmm. together to do something like that. So you do sometimes need these organizations that will provide that for you. But I, I, I yeah, I can see recovery. I don't think that it's often treated with the same weight as someone who was doing a, someone who had presented a very similar type of piece that might have been older. It might have been given more of a wow. We have a new part of the repertoire that we can put in there, but I don't think that's the same type of attitude that's given when you get a reading. I don't think anyone's, not always, but often thinking of, look at all the new rep that we're going to start programming. Yeah, there's something yeah. about the whole attitude towards it that's very like student work. Yes. Based. They, yes. They they treat you like they're reading your piece and they're doing you a favor. Yes. And to an extent, I feel like part of it that is there's a little bit of truth in that that it, they they know that they're giving you a good experience, but that seems to be the overshadowing that seems to be the the dominant aspect of it it doesn't seem Mm -hmm. that they're saying that the piece is necessarily worthy of becoming a consistent part of the rep it's just that look how awesome we are to give you this chance to have your piece played and i'm not saying that all there definitely are organizations that treat that way but i just know that there are several that do seem to do that and it's it's um it's great to get that experience but i feel like you have to the younger Composers need to go in with a little bit more of an expectation of what this will do. It's going to give you a really good recording, and you have to be prepared to still work to market yourself. I think a big thing is that if you're a younger composer, a lot of the ownership on your success comes from you. And it's not to say that more pop artists don't have that same experience, but like we talked about earlier, they do have a lot more corporate backing to get to those goals. Where as a composer, you're really on, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and having to like sell yourself in a sense to to become successful. And maybe that just takes longer. Yeah, it seems yeah. like there's very few centralized operations that are there to promote new work in this genre. There's no you don't hear about management agencies that are looking for composers. You know, they're looking for violinists or, you know, flute players or anything like that. But composers, not so much. There's no vehicle for Mm -hmm. promoting the work outside of getting a commission, like the Mm -hmm. one-on-one relationship between you and the people who are playing your music. Yeah. Well, I think that's so true. And I think that what could possibly be this subjective opinion, but what possibly could be is that judging composition is so subjective where if you know that you're looking for a violinist you know there's very set criteria that could tell you if the violinist is good Mm -hmm. you say here's what you need to play or here's the type of level you need to be at but composition can be fairly subjective so i feel like it's a lot harder more like spencer was saying the image to it there's you know a violinist is out there in front performing and of course you know their abilities have a lot to do with it but there also has a lot to do with like the way the person carries themselves the way that they you know, there's mm-hmm. all kinds of things. Their image, the way they dress or have their, you know, hair or however, you know, whatever yeah. their look is, is a big part of it because people are drawn to that. Yeah. Composers, it's like, okay, people might see you and think you're intriguing, but it's going to be in like your headshot or like a video. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. you're going to spend most of the time by yourself. What might be comparable is um, uh, an author or a playwright. That's what I was thinking about. I was just thinking this now. I was like, the weird thing about when you were talking about the difference in attitude towards it is like, you know, if, if a group of 30 year old composers, even 30 year old, you know, adults, <laughs> professionals come in and they say, we have music and we're going to have it played and your organizations volunteered you <laughs> to play it. The attitude is never, you know, one of these pieces could be the next thing. Like if, if somebody 
was reading, they were scouting for novels, they might be thinking, oh, this could be the next On the Road, or this could be the next uh, Catcher in the Rye. Was he young when he wrote that? But either way, there's not that attitude of discovery where you could be finding a new voice that people haven't heard before. And especially mm. now that we have a newer, a new generation of composers who are proving to be more diverse and interesting and have many, many more different things to say than their predecessors. It feels like they kind of should be interested in exploring that rather mm-hmm. than just saying like, oh, okay, we got music students or that they treat them like they're not music students, but they treat even mm-hmm. young, all these artists on the younger side of the spectrum not necessarily young but do you think it's possible that part of this is because people have come to know come to understand new music as um just you know a set of avant-gardisms i actually wonder if it's part of what people expect when they hear composer if they are aware that they're not all dead is that because they're so used to envisioning portraits of beethoven and bach with like frills and lots Mm -hmm. of coats that they think old person, even though they're not mm-hmm. old necessarily in those portraits, although in some of them they're wearing like powdered wigs and stuff. Yeah. Well, I know just but like they it's think, like an antiquated. They think antiquated, so they think mm-hmm. older. And I wonder if that's part of where that demeanor comes from. Although if you mm-hmm. think about it, like Philip Glass and John Adams weren't that old when they really got their feet under them. I think music students in general aren't really required to play new music i think that's part of it i know one of the so you think this goes back to the problem we keep bringing up over and over that the education system is the problem (laughs) well i know one of the audition requirements at queen's college was uh is to i know someone who who auditioned at queen's in the last couple years and to fulfill their modern piece they were allowed to pick don't say debussy debussy no really yeah for clarification, Debussy died in 1919. No, 1917, something like that. His butt exploded. Something like that. That's just a that's a prime example of how <clears throat> the mindset is not shifting with the passage of time. Right. I know. I have to say this. Somebody just wisely pointed out. Hopefully, a future guest on the pod, Max Graf, a composer who's pretty active on social media, said, uh, "I think a week ago. So it's June right now when we're recording this. So late May, I guess." Uh, it was the, there was more time between now and the premiere of the Rite of Spring than there was between the premiere of the Rite of Spring and the premiere of Beethoven V, like his fifth symphony. <laughs> yeah, that's a good so point. it's old. It's old. That's like that fact with the, um, we're f- or further away from Cleopatra than Cleopatra was from the building. Oh, of, yeah, it was no, like the iPhone it? is Hawk. closer. To, Cleopatra lived closer to the invention of the iPhone than she so lived the to the building of the pyramids, which is insane. I mean, that that does seem kind of insane, but it's, wow. No, I was just thinking. I made the analogy that new music could be compared to new authors and new playwrights, but then I was thinking about it, and I feel like that's not exactly true because, it, at least with playwrights and with novels. It's it's a more tangible language that people with less experience with that genre can still understand. You can still understand a really good plot. And I think it might be a little more difficult for a same group of people to necessarily. But it's not always the, the plot nuances. that makes something like that. 
True. I'm just saying that like work. So I, you mean at least it gives a, an, an easier point of entry to to yeah. See there's it, like a, a different to, metric to say whether you think it's good or bad, and because that also kind of ties in what I was also thinking on a related note is that kind of it seems very similar to what Stravinsky said about writing music without the rules, saying that the most terrifying thing is that the rules of music have been basically you know. Um, broken and you can do whatever you want so he had to create his own rules and i feel like maybe at the same time it's very similar with the critique of new music is that there's less very controlled things to say whether this piece succeeds as what it's trying to be and it's so subjective it's not to say there aren't aren't great pieces there aren't less great pieces but it's a little bit more difficult to navigate how to determine that and one person can have a much a very strong glowing review of something for the same reason someone else thinks it's terrible. Yeah, and I think that's that's why that's why people with institutional support tend to be favored and reviewed more and acquire more institutional support because people don't have to trust their own senses. Ooh. They can they can look at someone's credentials. And, yeah. Uh, so you think I think it's a people, really good point. Do you really think anyone's looking or who who are the people who would be looking at those things, do you mean? My parents. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> No, but seriously, like who's who's someone well, no. who's who's this prescribing value to a certain composer's well, work because I would of? Say, but oh, seriously, I think, like, I think yeah. who's I seeing think what commissions are from where reading those reviews? I like, think it's implicit. Audience members aren't. No, well, no, no, I think if you. Oh, sorry, no, 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 no I'm saying I, I, I think I, I really agree with that because I think that if you have two composers and one of them you're saying this person graduated from Yale or from Princeton or you know, just some very prestigious school and they study with da 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 da. Here's their piece. I feel like you're primed. Our benefactor. I feel like you're primed. Thank you, Juilliard. (laughs) For all your money. Yeah, mattresses by Juilliard. Come down to Juilliard mattresses. (laughs) (laughs) I'm ants in my eyes, Johnson. I was just watching. (laughs) And I've got ants in my eyes. Come down and our mattresses will all be flat. (laughs) (laughs) Shut up. No, but I would just say that I think you can f on them. Wait a oh. You're not being very that's, sharp right now. It's not on brand. It's not on brand. Trash no. that. Trash it. You can trash it. Your jokes have fallen flat. Uh, <laughs> so I would just say I think that's a very good point because I think that it's one of those instances where you're prime going in to say that was good because I know they have the background experience to write something good regardless of whether or not I think it's good. And you can have something of very similar quality if you don't know too much about them. Again, you're kind of not having any metrics to go off of, so you might not really even know how to feel about the piece. So I think that's a very valid point, that background and very factual things about your your compositional progression kind of helps paint the audience perception of what the piece is. Hmm. You know, it's inter- it's part of why I kind of brought this topic up in the first place, is a lot of the music I end up liking the most for certain reasons is music by younger, I hate saying this younger thing, Mm. but newer composers, as opposed to pieces coming out right now by uh, Thomas Addis or somebody like that. You know, they're obviously extremely well-executed pieces of music by them because they've been doing this for a long time and they're masters of what they do. However, composers of our generation are the ones who can, or, or that I find more often I can intuit a through line or a narrative or something really compelling about the piece as a whole. And I don't always get that from, you know, 
Scheherazade point two. But like, like what we were talking about before, I end up, I listen and I think the main difference between a piece by a composer of our generation and a piece by a more established musician is that the piece by the more established musician is played better uh, because oh, it's taken a little uh, bit more seriously by the performer. Look how that came full circle. I think that's very well, no, true. We brought that up originally off mic, but no, you were talking about how young, younger composers aren't necessarily taken as oh, seriously yeah, yeah. as well. And yeah. it's not just by the organization, but we're in the recapitulation. It, you now. can yeah. hear it in the performance. If you go listen, very true. if you listen to a piece by, if, if we hypothetically knew of an amazing, incredible piece of music by someone at around our stage in their career. And we had it played by some orchestra who'd never heard of them and presented it to those musicians in the way that this music is always presented in that, oh, it's a reading of student works, blah, 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 blah. It would come off fine. Whereas if we took a really like boilerplate, uninspired piece of music that's just pretty derivative and dull, but uses some ideas that are kind of on trend on the page Hmm. and gave it to, you know, the attack of quartet Mm -hmm. and they already knew this musician and they said like, Oh great. Yeah, of course we'll play it. And then they pour their guts out into it because they like the person and they love what they do. It's going to sound incredible unless it's extremely bad. Yeah. So I think that's really the main difference in presentation. Well, to those points, I think it comes down to a level of trust. I feel like you could give an orchestra the same exact passage that could be outrageous to do. But if it's by an established composer, there's a level of trust in saying that, well, they must know this is possible, so I'm going to do it. But if it's a new composer, the first response might be, you wrote this wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. It's- and it's not that that's not true, because there is a level of, of acknowledge and advancement when you get older that you could have, you've probably gone through the trial and error of finding that. But... There's not, I don't feel like there's an immediate sense of, well, let's let's try it as hard as we can to see if this is a doable thing to give that feedback. But it's also how much you're willing to bet that if and when the composer shows up at a later rehearsal and you've made that edit, that they're not going to know something that you don't and say like, no, that's fucking doable. Mm-hmm. You do it this way. Or it's kind of like, I mean, it's all about the, the way that you sort of carry yourself mm-hmm. musically. It's sort of like how... You know, we used to joke if like somebody's trying to buy liquor underage in college and they go to the liquor store and they say, like, can I see some ID? And they're they just the person underage says, like, oh, I forgot my ID. I guess <laughs> I'll go home and get it. But the person who's overage or like and actually forgot their ID is like, I'm not fucking going home and then coming all the way back. Oh, that's here. A, that is, Give that's me my goddamn really vodka. Yeah, that's and then they go like, Yeah, you're yeah, you're 30. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's a really I never thought about that that's, that's true yeah well I feel like yeah. there's also a flip side of it where as a composer if you are a more established composer and you have that level of confidence just like you're saying and they you you would tell them no I be- this has been done I know that it's doable but if I mm-hmm. if let's say me, or if a piece has been done before true they yes, have a different they have a, response yep. or it, if the your difficult passage was lifted directly from <laughs> like a piece of rap <laughs> you're like oh my god right there's so many octaves here and you're like i this is straight from sibelius like i know you can do this because <laughs> that's I fair i pasted it this is plagiarism and you're a liar <laughs> As a composer of our generation, I can I feel like I would ageisming me. 
I would never, if a, if a performer told me this can't be done, I would never at this point have the balls to say, yeah, you yeah, it can. I would be like, if oh, let me well, fix well, that well, for if you. If it's one-on-one, on one, like you can tell someone. In, in a bigger ensemble scenario, like in a rehearsal with other people, then it's a little more tricky to, to <clears throat> say something well, like you're that. More, you're definitely more confident than I am, and that's what I'm trying to work on. But I definitely feel like even in a one-on-one, I would... I would just be it like, I made a mistake. Is. Let it me fix it, it for is. you. Because yeah. well, I've had too many experiences where like the first time I ever had a, a reading or recording of any kind, I had this string quartet and I had like this idea of this, this technique and I was kind of combining different things. And the, the, the head of the, this cobbled together quartet was working with me on the phone, kind of going through the score and looking at things. And one of the first things he saw was this very difficult thing. And he was like, it's really not doable. And he basically took that as licenses of I didn't know what I was doing. And so he then proceeded to tell me all these other things in the piece that were, air quotes, not doable. And I sort of believed him. But then even within like two months after this recording session, I was like, you can do that. Mm -hmm. You can play a harmonic for more than a bar. He really? was just he said like you couldn't he, do that. Well, I had him tied together for a long time, and he was interpreting that as like never rebow, like one uh, long oh. bow stroke for like thirty seconds. I'm like, just redo it, and he was like, you'll hear it, and I was like, I don't care. But yeah, what? That's what ties are. You're like, a string you're player. You're supposed to disguise them. It's a yeah. Thing. We're do. talking shop now, but whatever. Yeah, yeah. So those kinds of things, like younger players, are just more susceptible to people either being lazy or not understanding the style or having just randomly this gap in their knowledge mm. in some mm. technique that you've read up on and so therefore they're more likely to go oh, okay and have something mm. be watered down by yeah and be cynical and overly critical it be uh, immediately skeptical of composers of oh, our the generation players, the players, the yeah. players mm-hmm. yeah i think it's that's very rampant yeah and maybe that that comes from younger players thinking that Debussy counts as contemporary. I mean, it could <laughs> be, but I also think fine. it has a lot to do with the way the institutions and and the genre as a whole treats these composers of a younger set. It, they're, this idea that you're not an adult in this genre or a true artist of, 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 with full capabilities until you're like 45 is utterly ridiculous. Or, I mean, now, you know, less so 35 or something like that. It's, it's ridiculous. Well, and if you haven't gotten the right amount of support or earned the right number of credentials by the time you're 45, then you're never going to be anything. Or exactly the other problem, the flip side of this whole thing, there's a really interesting article on new music box by someone named Bill, Dorfeld, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Bill, if you ever hear this, I'm so sorry if I just butchered your last name. Right Thanks, to us. Billy. Uh, from 2013, uh, titled Ageism in Composer Opportunities. And it's what's interesting is if you don't follow this prescribed career path that treats younger composers in this way, you're still fucked in the other direction because a lot of them stop allowing you to apply to get your foot in the door and really, you know, start honing your skills. Uh, You're not, you can't apply once you're 30 or 35, something like that. So somebody who comes into this later in life, there's plenty of people who do master's degrees when they're Mm -hmm. 40 in other, in other fields, but 
you are suddenly up the creek. You can't get any of these things that help get your name out there that help establish you or hone your ear to what a certain type of ensemble sounds like. Right. One second, Martin I'm Gould ends at 30, right? Yeah, I just got rejected for the last time. <clears throat> oh, I never even got to get rejected. Oh, no, I just Damn got it. rejected from BMI for the last time. Excuse me. <laughs> so I think the, what is it? the takeaway of this is write what you want, be confident, and don't give AF. Yeah. The, the one other thing I thought of bringing up was the flip side of this whole idea that no one's taking younger composers that seriously in that occasionally seemingly an adequate amount of media attention is given to very young composers in the form of classical prodigies who some journalist hears about and says and titles it without fail a new Mozart. <laughs> Every time there's Jay Greenberg was big 10 years ago. There's a little girl named Alma Deutscher right now who is getting tons of it. And it's always just that they, they literally are like a new Mozart in that they just write fake Mozart music. And yeah, they always, they always write like imitations of classical music. I mean, which you shouldn't expect something like deep and dark and philosophical <clears throat> from a, a little kid, but still it's, mm. it is just, it's this bizarre thing where some certain sources get overly excited about very, very young people mm-hmm. who aren't proving something that's super, uh, substantive. Su- yeah. Thank you very much. Super substantive yet. They have the potential to, but mm-hmm. they never end up doing yeah. it. Very sorry, Alma. If you, if you hear this when you're 14, no, she shouldn't as explicit. Right you're going to forget this by the time you're 16. But like, but like no one hears from them ever again. Mm. Well, it's treat like a novelty. I yeah. Think. Well, right. It's it's a novelty, and that's why it ends up on sixty minutes, and that's. It's always <clears throat> sixty minutes. Yeah. I found sixty minutes for both of those that I just yeah. mentioned. And it they, they're writing what? I was doing the sixty uh, minutes. Oh, oh, my god, that was good. That was a good impression of 60 minutes. I, know. I do what I can. <laughs> he did a good <clears throat> clock. I do a good clock. My impressions are getting steadily worse, just like Spencer's pieces. <laughs> very simple. That's all I'm saying. But, I'll um, come out with like a really back catalog one soon. This is breathing. I'll do, I'll do Stanley Tucci. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea how I'm going to do that. If one of those child prodigies were doing avant-garde music, do you think, or or anything that's like less recognizable to a general audience, do you think they would get their segment on 60 Minutes? I wonder. Because I think the general audience that is excited to, ooh, is a new Mozart, thinks that, like, inherent to being Mozart, they write in Mozart style. I think something similar <clears throat> to what we were talking about with composers dealing with players would happen, where because they're very young, if they were writing avant-garde music, people would just go like, makes a lot of mistakes, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound like a music. Of, a lot of wrong notes. <laughs> well, in, in my day, we used functional tonality. <laughs> <laughs> All this confangled <laughs> bullshit. If you're really trying to juice things up, you might get polytonal on a Friday, but that's as far as it goes. <laughs> <laughs> We's Protestant here. We's Protestant. <laughs> well, I think that we ain't like the Catholics. <laughs> Three syllables, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like athlete. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure we quite got to this point, but I think a takeaway for me is that composers and musicians of any ilk should feel that they can carry themselves and their music and their art with confidence and that 
in and of itself will change or at least hopefully should change some of the ways that new music is perceived and treated not just by listeners, but by ensembles and institutions too. I agree with Gabby Johnson. Boom. <laughs> that was it. End quote. <clears throat> you wrapped it up. Get I wrapped it. it. I wrapped it. Get it. Get it. For today's episode of the show, I got to sit down with my good friend, Greg Simon. Greg is not only an incredibly talented composer, but also a dedicated teacher, deep thinker, and pretty damn good trumpet player. Although he writes what one would call contemporary classical music, his influences aren't limited to Brahms or Beethoven. Greg pulls from a toolbox of sounds and colors that find their roots in his performance of jazz throughout his entire life. His love of playing and of real-time dialogue between musicians during performance are evident in a lot of his pieces, where improvisation and collaborative efforts come to the foreground. I've known Greg for a while, so I knew that no matter what I ended up preparing for this interview, the conversation was going to go in a million different directions that I couldn't hope to predict. We ended up talking about the places of jazz and classical music, both together and in their own, unfortunately, separate worlds, whether or not it's necessary for composers to also be teachers, and digging way deeper, the nature of narrative in music. It was a lot of fun for me to catch up with an old friend, but I'm sure you'll find it even more fascinating to hear what a really unique artist has to say. This is my interview with Greg Simon. Enjoy. Good man, how are you? I'm doing good. Good man, it's it's been a awesome. while. What's what's it been like? Three years, something like that. It's been something like three years. Yeah. Oh my goodness! And and you've been pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, you know, I try to keep uh, tabs on on as many of the Brevard alumni as I can. Every year, you, you some know people how... call that stalking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's definitely a shade of that. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, some of it for a while, like especially before. I got a full-time job like some of it was just like I like you and I I feel like I have a lot to learn from you and also I'm petrified that you're gonna go up against me for a full-time gig so I need to like scope out the competition and stuff like that <laughs> this is very crafty of you. very very crafty I mean that's that's how you get the yeah. edge in this world like <laughs> But no, dude, you've been doing some amazing stuff. It's been so much fun to watch all the music that you've been writing and and like the podcast is awesome. I think I told oh, you. Thanks, dude. Yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's definitely jumped the shark now that I'm on it. But, you know, <laughs> it was too extreme for season one. So that's why we <laughs> that's someone right. who appreciates jazz. <sighs> oh, man. Oh, my God. Oh, oh, you said it. <laughs> it's it's funny man like I, I i love i love talking about jazz and and i love talking about my relationship with it but it's so funny to be reminded that there's still not that much crossover between like the composition world and the jazz world and i mean may, maybe it's different in the city i really don't know but like out here i'm pretty active in the jazz community i do a lot of playing um i i hang out with a lot of jazz musicians and then I'm starting to grow a little bit of a, a composition community at UNL, and the amount of crossover the the two worlds have is is surprisingly small. 
it, it's starting to to liquefy a little bit, but really the contact that I have with the jazz world and the contact that I have with the classical world are are completely different. Yeah, it's weird. I know just being at a a school where they have two departments dedicated to classical composition and jazz, and they share a building and sometimes share floors, and you don't know a damn soul in in the other department. Right. Uh, The image I think that people think of is the like rehearsal dynamic is so different. The the way you share your music is so different. How you gig. I mean, composers don't really have a gigging mindset at all in the same way jazz people do. I don't think anyway. No, no, I I, I think you're onto something. Like I, I've tried for my part to to sort of reconcile these two worlds. I'm I'm not gonna say in my music generally, but in projects, I, I've tried to like bring jazz musicians and classical musicians into the same sphere. And I always feel like I'm trying to speak two different languages at once. Not not in terms of the music necessarily but maybe in terms of like you, you kind of hit it on the head, like when a jazz musician gets into a rehearsal, they're acting right. one way and it's about, OK, we we have, you know, five minutes <laughs> sometimes to to read down the chart, make sure the notes are where they need to be. And then any yeah. extra time is is spent talking about, OK, what's the dynamic between this particular group of players? How can we outside of the music make sure that we're we're making the best choices in the context of one another? Being in the in the orchestra or the chamber music context, whatever, is a totally different animal. It's all about how how faithful is this to the score or, you know, is my is like the player's interpretation really in line with what the conductor wants exactly. or with what the if you're lucky enough to have a conductor who's wondering what the composer wants, then you. right (laughs) like another layer of depth to it yeah yeah well and i mean i've lucked into working with some great conductors who with these you know with the context of these projects that that sort of have the ability to talk to two groups but it leaves me with like a genuine respect and admiration for people who can bridge those two gaps successfully so it's funny to to talk about my composition with any any sort of acknowledgement of the fact that i'm a jazz musician because it feels like I'm talking about, you know, a version of Greg that's like in the closet, like like the, <laughs> you know, that's that, that yeah. when I when I talk about jazz, okay, I bring him out, I go stand in the closet for a little bit, you know. I know it's weird. Like I don't, I wouldn't consider myself a jazz musician at all, but it's something that has been like a really long lasting and thorough part of my musical growing up and my and my ear and everything. Sure. And so I have that this like vocabulary of things that I think sound good or things that I tend towards, but it's so not in line with a lot of the ways you're taught to put notes together in, you know, the chamber music or orchestra context. Right. And like sometimes I do still feel it bleeding through a little bit. Uh-huh. Like when, you know, somebody says like, oh, that sounds like, you know, Vaburn mixed with, you know, Bill Evans. I'm like, I'm taking that as a compliment, <laughs> but I'm not sure you meant it that right, way. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, and that's the other part of it. Yeah, is, is as soon as someone says something like that, it's it's kind of like there's that ghost of like the, oh, you should write film scores. But it does bring up for me like a, a, an interesting question, which is, you know, beyond the musical signifiers, you know, where, where you're using specific types of voicings that favor seven sing force, you know, beyond what we consider sort of the stylistic characteristics. I, I mean, let me ask you, Beyond those sort of musical things, what do you consider to be the soul of jazz, the musical soul of jazz beyond the sort of harmonic and melodic characteristics of it? 
but it seems obvious like a lot of people want to fuse with jazz like a lot of mm-hmm. genres i mean we could name tons but even you know hip-hop like kendrick lamar made an amazing album by bringing in a jazz quint quintet oh quartet. yeah i always yeah. forget uh, the uh, number it's incredible mm-hmm. but what's so funny is like classical and jazz seem to have a lot of times this like issue of how do you get them to come together and they're both they're both (laughs) genres of music that a lot of society has decided is wallpaper right you know that that's Mm. the genre that you hear in the background at starbucks or in an elevator or it's these two like amazing styles of music that they're going oh this will be this will be fine yeah no one will have to listen (laughs) And I mean, I I wonder, I I don't know, the the jazz performance construct is especially at this point kind of kind of fluid, like it can be done anywhere. It sort of habitually is really accessible. It's really, you know, it it, it does a good job. I think, I mean, jazz has a lot of problems, but it does do, I think, for the most part, a good job of tell me all the problems. Oh, oh, man. Well, well, (laughs) as a uh, as a white jazz musician in the middle of the country, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> no, um, I, I mean, I, I do think that jazz does a really good job, generally speaking, of putting itself in places where access in terms of physical and to a lesser extent economic access is not as much of an issue as it could be. Um, you know, coffee houses, bars, outdoor festivals, things like that. And yeah. classical music, I, I think, you know, it's it's I think kind of low hanging fruit to say, well, we will never get outside the concert hall. You know, I think I think we're making some inroads there, too. But it does make me wonder if pursuant to what we're talking about, how much of the issue has been the performance constructs, at least historically, force us to be narrow. And, you know, there, there are sort of these like hmm. spiritual ways that that might be true where, you know, if you have the audience at the Philharmonic, if you put a jazz, a jazz combo on stage with them or hell, if you put a rock band on stage with them, there might be an uh, a, an apprehension among <clears throat> certain elements of the uh, of the concert goers. But there's also the real stuff of every musician in the Philharmonic belongs to the local and that's not a given for the jazz yeah. musicians. That's not a given for the rock musicians. So, hmm. you know, how, how do you how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that side of the performance construct? It is something that classical music has that you're right. Jazz and rock do not. I should say jazz and any other genre do not. But it would, I don't know how they how much better they would fare if they did. Although I guess with jazz, it would be really interesting because you could just say, like, I live in this city and you can subscribe to me and come to any <laughs> concert you want. I play in this basement. Just show up. I'll let you in. (laughs) I guess it does sort of work like that for some people who know the musicians. Well, you know, when I was living in Denver and and I was making a little bread as as a jazz musician, kind of just supplementing all the other sorts of pieces of the puzzle that I was trying to put together out there. I knew a lot of people who a lot of the most lucrative shows that they were playing were house concerts. Um, Concerts that were given in in people's living rooms. And, you know, we're not always talking the upper crust of Denver. You know, a lot of these people were middle class that just had nice houses with halfway decent rooms and they would help them advertise. It wouldn't necessarily be a an audience of all friends There would occasionally be people. uh, Oh, so it's not like a like a you don't mean like a birthday party gig or something like that. You mean like I mean like a a, a party, I uh, guess, is more favorable. Right. Right. A real 
event. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, the it, it's kind of both and like often it was sort of centered around like a social gathering. But in a place like that, that ended up making a lot of sense because there weren't that many venues that were paying really well in town. And because there weren't that many venues that were paying really well in town, a lot of the venues that were were pretty booked up. And a lot of them were trying to bring in international acts or national touring acts things like that. So, you know, for the jazz musicians around town who were really heavy players, but kind of more workaday in terms of they they were just here in the city making music, this represents a lot of opportunity for those people. Like if you're in that environment, that's an environment, you know, especially if it's if you're surrounded by people who you've had a chance to talk to and, you know, get to know a little bit and and maybe even potentially share a meal or something like that with before the performance. In, in my head, in that environment, you are much more receptive to new aesthetic ideas. Um, or at the very oh, least, that's a really interesting thought. That yeah, I, don't I know. hadn't thought of that even. Yeah, the the idea that people might be yeah more receptive to stuff they haven't heard, which seems to be the problem for the most part. I think that's one thing that I know I've noticed with a lot of musicians mm-hmm. is of any genre is they seem to be the kind of people who always were seeking out music on their own that was different and didn't have to be kind of just told what to listen to the whole time. That's not necessarily true for all musicians by any extent. Sure. Especially classical musicians because they get told a lot what to listen to. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But they do. There is this shared thing of having that kind of personality where you're you're trying to explore music as opposed to just have it happen to you. Right. Um, Right. And maybe that sort of thing would help with that because people do have they're reluctant to go hear something new that they're sure. unsure of. Yeah, or or at the very least, it's it's going to be hard for them to be fully present with what they're being presented with if they're extremely self-conscious about the environment that they're in. You know, this is one of the shortcomings oh, yeah. that I that I think both you and I kind of agree on about the performance construct in general surrounding classical music is like the pageantry of it and and sort of the unwritten the code of it is is a huge turnoff you know and and it's it's certainly not the only obstacle but it is certainly an obstacle And and what's weird about it is it's like pageantry without spectacle of any kind it is just there yeah the music is the the music has to carry the entire show seems to be the attitude right like if you if you think that anything could be added you're basically thinking lesser of these holy texts or something like that <laughs> and like i remember actually you were there this is crazy so we went uh we were in north carolina 3 years ago yep. and the it was a string quartet came in town and they played the bartok fourth quartet was it the uh was it the shanghai's shanghai quartet yeah Mm -hmm. and i just remember that we were watching it and the fact that they had a different color light splash on stage for each movement was like (laughs) mind-blowing not mind-blowing that we didn't appreciate that's something you can do in a concert but just in the context of classical music we're like thank christ oh my god anything yeah <laughs> anything at all <laughs> yeah well and and something that just yeah makes you fe- makes you feel more welcome to to the construct right like makes you feel less like mm-hmm. you're like you're you're at the zoo and seeing something behind a pane of glass like even something as simple as that that acknowledges that 
whether you intend it to or not, it is always a multi-sensory experience to hear something live, like something that that taps into that. That can be really, really, really powerful. So it was almost four years yeah. ago. And, and I still you, remember and still remember it. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's art, man. Like, that's it. That's power. So uh, are you headed back there this summer, back to Brevard? I am. Yeah. This is uh, this is going to be my fourth year on the faculty out there. There is something to be said for being like out in the wilderness and enjoying, not that it's really wilderness there, but yeah. enjoying <laughs> like making music and all that stuff. Like it's definitely a trend that seems to work for a lot of people. Yeah. Like there's the whole, uh, what's that thing in Alaska? Is it music in the wilderness? Or oh yeah. Mu- music in the wilderness. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. I, I, I think you're right. You know, I, I have to talk about summer festivals a lot because I, I have to talk with my students about them. So you're on faculty there. Actually, this is a good place to talk about this with your teaching. I guess I'm curious about your thoughts on the importance of composers in general and their relationship to teaching, because I feel like it's such a common career track to go through their degrees and then keep going along that path with the vague idea of teaching to some extent. And it's really, really common. And so I'm wondering maybe with composers specifically, what are your thoughts on our our role or our maybe societal call to teach? Do you think it's do you think teaching is a a necessary part of being a composer? I don't want to say in your career as a composer, but in your in someone's life. Oh, that's a really good question. I will say, well, you're welcome. I will say that I have learned more about my own composition from teaching than I have from maybe any other factor in my musical life. But especially because of the position that I have now at Nebraska, it's kind of the thing that I preoccupy my thinking about is is teaching. And what it does is teaching forces you to galvanize those things that you believe about music in a way that is clear enough that you can explain them to someone who doesn't know what you're talking about. Even stuff like, what do I believe about the way a piece of classical music should function within a society? And, you know, particularly a society that has such issues of access, not only holistic, but like economically, geographically, that has all these issues. Like, what is the role of a, cl- a classical composition within that? Like, I, I didn't have any answers to those questions, not really, until I had to explain to a student why I disagreed with the choices that they were making. And, and as soon as I started to do that, it started to help me sort of clarify things for myself. And what that ended up doing, of course, and not, not only I think it made me a better composer, but it also made it a lot less painful for me to sit down at the writing desk because I had mm. some questions that I could ask myself when I got stuck and, and I could, mm-hmm. you know, turn, turn the magnifying glass on myself in those moments and be like, okay, what is the problem here? With so many so many composers specifically who go into teaching at mm-hmm. the college level, it does seem almost like for a lot of folks, it is, it seems like the standard. It, if it's the standard, do you think that that is the right way for things to be that like, if somebody has the love of music built into them and writing music that they should by default be going into teaching? Or do you think that it should really be a position reserved for those who care about the fostering of, of younger artists 
specifically oh, in man. addition to their own music. Yeah, like, I mean, this is so tricky because, you know, well, a- a- everybody wants health insurance, right? Like, right. It seems like right now we're inundated with people applying or uh, applying for these positions or who already have them who are composers and then they have their reasons for doing it. And some do it because they love teaching and some do it because they, like you said, they need health insurance. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I would never disparage anyone who wants to pursue an academic job for any reason. I love teaching. And I think that especially in the last couple of years, I've, I've come to see myself as more of a teacher and less of a composer. But the reality is that is not why I went back to grad school. I went back to grad school because I thought that if I got a DMA and got a PhD or a, and got a teaching job, then I would have a decent salary and benefits and be able to pay back my student loans. And I was going to be able to do all those things a lot easier than if I was freelancing. You know, yeah. that's that that's a real life experience, I think, for a lot of people right now is just that. Whether or not you love teaching is almost not part of the question. It's a a full-time teaching job is a long-term secure source of income and health benefits and, you know, potentially. That is also fulfilling, potentially. That is also fulfilling, right? It's no wonder that everybody wants that, right? It's no wonder that it's that it's so attractive. Of course, that's coming from two people who enjoy teaching <laughs> there could be other composers <laughs> like oh, jesus christ i can't take it <laughs> right 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 well and, and but that's the funny part man is like i i don't know that i've ever met someone who really hates teaching have you i mean i'm sure they're I've out probably there. met a, i've probably met a few really good liars but ah. i don't know that, i've never met anyone who out and i think there are they are few but mm. i i don't think i've met anyone who outwardly in music is kind of like, yeah, I'm just doing this so I can pay the bills or, right. I, you know, really despise it or something. Right. I'm, I mean, it's a hell of a lot of work if you're just doing it to pay the bills. Like, yeah, I know. I, I, I love getting up at uh, for, for an 830 committee meeting. That's awesome. <laughs> that's my favorite part of the job. <laughs> I mean, you know, oh, see, that's what you got out of adjuncting. That was your big mistake. You don't have to. Oh, go to yeah. All you have that, to do those... is live in poverty with horrible hours. <laughs> Those were the good old days. Yeah, I loved seeing my check engine light come on those days. That was great. <laughs> oh, man. I, I mean, here's here's where I think I, I land on this whole big question. First and foremost, I don't think there is a wrong way for a musician to make a living. And if that is that thing that gives you the financial and emotional and mental security to pursue your music is a non-musical pursuit. I don't see an ounce of failure in that at all. Like that's kind of the world we live in. Mm-hmm. And the, the corollary to that is that there are a lot of ways to teach composition that have nothing to do with the university system or the conservatory system. And I feel like you could even go as far as to say, we could probably use a few more of those composers to approach that thing in itself. But like one of the things that I've been thinking about, um, especially while I've been living here, is the geographical lack of access. So Nebraska is situated such that the two big cities, if you can call them that, Lincoln and Omaha, are on basically the the eastern 100-mile strip of the state. Omaha's a bit north. It's kind of by the IO line. It's about 800,000. Lincoln is about 300,000. Both of them are growing pretty fast. 
as you go west, you hit a couple of other sort of medium-sized city areas. Kearney's got about, I think, 150,000. And then it's not that there's nothing, but the next major city, the next major cultural hub you run into is is Denver. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. Really? Right. Yep. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, that's a swath of the state that doesn't represent demographically a huge number of people. I couldn't tell you the exact number, but how are those people going to get access to classical music? You know, how are those people going to be able to see a live performance, even if they have the financial means, you know, even if they're living a middle class existence, which is certainly possible in that part of the state? For someone in Chadron, which is way in the northwest corner of the state, to get to a professional performance of classical music, very often they've got to either come to Omaha or they've got to go to Denver. And both of those are about, you know, between four and eight hours of driving. And so now let's add into that. Where are the composers? Where are the people, if you have a kid who's going to one of those high schools, who's interested in composition, they may have a high school music teacher who's very dedicated and very talented and and may even quite possibly have some experience in composition. But just like anything else, you know, if we if we expect a kid to go on as a college violinist, for example, we generally expect that they're going to pursue some private teaching before they get to college, right? Like you you don't just sort of Mm -hmm. stumble into your freshman year without having pursued some private tutoring. There are, of of course, economic gates to to this, depending on the individuals that you're talking about. But for a lot of of people in the country, there's a geographical gate. But more generally, I am trying to encourage, especially our students at Nebraska, because a lot of them are interested in music ed, to, you know, if they intend, as many of them do, to go back to... Hastings or Fremont or or these other sort of areas that are a little less populous and and teach, you know, that in, in basically their hometowns. I'm encouraging them as much as I can to study composition and go out and have a good idea of how you can integrate that kind of teaching into the curriculum. Do you find as new and new and obviously younger generation students Mm-hmm. come in that things like that are are changing as uh i guess maybe as things like you know generic examples spotify youtube all these means of accessing recordings and even digital lessons and things like that either skype lessons with people or mm-hmm. you know khan academy kind of things that that's sort of changing or do you find that there are still similar trends because of like the culture of a given area is well we're not necessarily connected with that so it's not in the working vocabulary or in the the thing you reach for first um yes and no yes and no i I do think that you know of course digital access has been instrumental in making it possible for students from wherever they are to to encounter ideas that they wouldn't encounter otherwise i also don't think there's any substitute for hands-on experience or in-person experience and especially in-person participation. Show choir is really, really, really big in Nebraska. And it's not that, you know, a lot of our composers come in who are who are freshmen and are extremely interested in show choir. 
And mm. it's not that they're not interested in classical music and it's not that they're not interested in jazz. But when it comes to composition, the thing they want to write often is show choir. Because when they think about the experiences that made them want to be a musician in the first place, it was all centered around the thing that they were doing. I love that idea about the difference in, in I guess, in inspiration between what you grew up playing and what you grew up listening to. Because And it cycles back sort of to what I was saying, like, I'm not a jazz musician, but I have that like so deeply ingrained in my ear because we had... WGBH, the local NPR station on 24-7 in my house growing up. And every night from 7, I think, until dawn, they just played jazz all night. Yeah. And I had the radio in my room. So it was like something. But at the same time, I never played it. So it's not in my musical DNA in the same way as Led Zeppelin or things that I was playing on guitar. Um, yeah. So when I was growing up, I didn't listen to classical music at all. And, and I listened a little yeah, bit me to neither. jazz. Right. I, I think both of us kind of came into it from the outside. And I got my first jazz CDs after I started playing jazz. But when I was growing up, a lot of the music that I remember, my dad was into like kind of classic rock. He loved James Taylor. He loved, oh man, uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash. But the ones, the stuff that I remember listening to coming up was all Chilean music because my mom had, you know, emigrated after the coup in 1973. And she had mm. brought with her like records by Inti Ilmani and Victor Jara and Kila Payun and these groups that now at this point in my creative work are really meaningful to me and really shape what I'm doing. And it's kind of taken like, um, you know, 25, 30 years for me to get to the point where I'm ready to sort of integrate them. But it's exactly like you're talking about. Even when I'm writing music about Chile, even when I'm writing music that's informed by by that sort of part of my heritage, I still sound like a jazz musician, I think, B- because that's yeah. the music that's sort of like that's that's the music that's inside me. That's the music that I learned to embody creatively. And then when I started writing music down, that's the stuff that kind of came to the forefront. You reminded me like of talking about playing versus writing. Yeah. You, when we talked a little bit before this and you had said like right now you're doing like like 60 teaching percent of your work time and 30 percent music. And that 30 is like 20 writing, 10 playing. We've been talking about music so, so much this episode. What are you doing with the other 10 (laughs) percent what do you do with the five minutes every day that you're not teaching oh man wow what what do i do well this time of year i watch playoff hockey as as long as the san jose sharks are still in the mix which as of last night they are and hopefully by the time this airs they'll be hoisting the first stanley cup and of course now that i said that they're not going to Let's see what else. I mean, I, I you know, I, I try to read as much as I can. I, I'm much more into kind of two things now, short stories and modern educational theory. I'm reading, uh, rereading rather, this book of short stories by Kelly Link, who is amazing, won the MacArthur Grant last year. It's called Magic for Beginners. Everybody should check it out. And at the same time, I'm reading a new book by a writer named John Warner, who is a really interesting and just very, very intelligent writing teacher and and sort of pedagogical theorist. And his, his book, Why They Can't Write, 
that talks about sort of the way we teach English composition and and all the ways that it f- sets students up to fail. I'm really diving into that. It's really great. And and I haven't said this, I don't think, on Twitter or anything like that, but I think this would be a really good read for anyone who ever teaches composition, too, for, you know, a thousand different reasons. I think so many, like, writers are such, I mean, like, authors are such a great resource for composers like Stephen King's on writing and... Mm-hmm. And like, it just all kind of applies somehow. And mm-hmm. like, I, I give it to my students. I think it's because it's all under the authorship umbrella, even though it's a different medium entirely. It's yeah. still about one person finding the impetus to, to make something and make it well and do it a certain way to a certain caliber and everything. Like my, my students, I think, would tell you that I'm more and more kind of obsessed with narrative and, and the connections mm-hmm. that it has to music and, and how we interpret it. And like, in addition to all those things, that's all true. It, it's also you experience a piece of literature in time, a- at least mm-hmm. most literature. You start at the beginning and you kind of go to the end. Right. And even in like the context of like a choose your own adventure or something like that. You're always experiencing it linearly, like there is a starting point and there is an ending point. And music is experienced the same way. Whatever music it is, no matter how thorny or weird or whatever culture it comes from, you always are forced to experience it over time. You're always experiencing it linearly. Right. Music, you're just not the one who's in control unless you're the one playing it. Right. Exactly. You you don't control the pacing and you don't control when you... I guess when you're reading, you can look away or take a break. But but you are still rolling out the story from the beginning to the end, right? And you are you mm-hmm. are giving your listener knowledge in a controlled sequence. And, you know, contrast this with something like a painting or a sculpture or, or something visual where once you've painted a painting, you lose the ability to dictate whether the person who sees it starts at the bottom left corner or starts at the top right corner. Right. The the onus at that point is on the person who's experiencing the work of art with literature. You experience it in a straight line, even if you are taking breaks or, you know, reading it before bed at night or whatever. And music, by definition, you experience it in a straight line because it exists over time. So there's a lot of parallels that I'm starting to see between um, the the theory of literature and the theory of narrative and the way we make compositional decisions. One of my big ideas right now, and I mean, it's it's far from being the most original idea in the planet. Like there are a lot of people who have thought about this and thought about music in this way. Mm-hmm. But but using the monomyth, using the hero's journey as a way to oh, model yeah. compositional concepts, a lot of the concepts that you can find in the hero's journey, and I'll try to give the elevator pitch, a lot of the way the, <laughs> the monomyth balances itself is in these sort of big blocks of there is an order force that is challenged, disturbed by a chaos force, and the two come into balance. Mm-hmm. So this this has a lot of parallels in, in classical music, of course, and you can illustrate some of these, like sonata form comes to mind. Where this enters the equation for me is I, especially in Nebraska, encounter a lot of students who are really interesting, dedicated musicians who want to be composers but have never experienced classical music. And, you know, some of them come in not even reading all that well. 
Like I, I have a student right now who is the lead guitarist. And before he came to college, he took about a couple years off after high school. And during that time, he was the lead guitarist for a pretty successful regionally bluegrass band. And like when he applied hmm. to the composition program, he didn't send us any scores. He just sent us the album that he'd made with this group. And it was really good, really creative, awesome songwriting craft, lots of beautiful music within it. So we brought him in. How do you teach them formal balance using the tools that we usually use in the studio? Well, you can do it after they've had a couple years of theory, but by then their education is half over. By the time mm -hmm. they're really ready to not only think about sonata form critically, but master it in a way that makes sense to them and, and that they can then you know, bring their own sort of creative philosophy and creative spin on it to the table, that might happen in the first semester of their sophomore year, but it may not happen until the end of their sophomore year, beginning of their junior year. And then you've got two years in which they're writing music with this level of attention to detail. But if you acknowledge that sonata form is essentially the hero's journey, well, then this student and any other student who's grown up hearing stories of any kind, whether it's going to the movies and seeing Star Wars, whether it's, you know, reading books at home, whether it's acting in the school musical, has an existing familiarity with all of these paradigms. What we're going to talk about is you are going to write a hero's journey piece, and that's what this is what that means. It doesn't mean programmatic music. It doesn't mean, you know, here's where the hero picks up the sword and chops off the head of the bad guy. It means you establish an order force, you establish a chaos force, you see what happens when they, you know, you put them in a jar, you shake the jar, you see what happens when they battle with each other, and then you have to bring them into balance again. That's sonata form, but it's a way of talking about the sonata form that a student that's never had a day of music theory has tools to understand. So Dude, that, that that's was like the most box. cogent thing that's ever been said on this show. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That was incredible. All right. Well, I, I blacked out for a second. I don't really know what happened. <laughs> Welcome back. It's it's June 17th oh, of man. 2021. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I hate I hate to say like I sincerely am regretting to say this. We we're at like our last question or my last question and we can talk about it for a while, but like. Sure. It's the the time in the show that the last question happens. Oh, because this is so fun. But yeah. it means that we have more to talk about next time. You, come I, I mean, any time. Yeah. You, you want to bring me back for season 15? I will be here. I promise. Amazing. You're so <laughs> confident in us. You think we have law and order longevity. You're nice. <laughs> I think you have prices right longevity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> am I uh, am I Drew Carey or am I Bob Barker? Ooh. Ooh. Let, let, let's go with Bob uh, Barker. <laughs> uh, thanks. <laughs> it's a really easy question. Actually, I think you will probably have a harder time than most, but I think no pressure. You're probably going to have one of the best answers we've ever had. Oh, man. OK, here we go. Just because you've got the frame of reference. The question mm -hmm. I always ask people at the end of the interviews when I do them is what is your favorite non-classical piece of music? Ooh. And you know what? For you... I'm also I'm going to say what's your favorite non-classical non-jazz piece All right. Of music? 
If I'm being honest, I am not listening to that much classical music or that much jazz at the moment. Like, certainly it's not like part of my sort of workaday musical diet. And I think I think that's healthy. So I actually, especially for the last couple of years, have been listening to a ton of electronic music because that's an uh-huh. that's an arena that I, I, I know a little bit about it now that I've kind of seat myself in it. But it's not like it, it, it's not second skin to me. Like it doesn't, it doesn't, I still feel like I'm always learning something every time I put it on. I'll say my favorite piece of music outside of classical, outside of jazz. I mean, if you ask me tomorrow, this answer is probably going to be different, but there is a German electronic music artist that goes by the name Bursarin Quartet. Collectively, his second album, which is just called Two, is... Absolutely transcendent. I think it's one of the most beautiful things that's ever been created. And it's, you know, it, it's it's ambient. There's not much to it. But even within like this really beautiful sort of just warm, lush soundscape, he finds so many ways to just like tweak the edges and, and you know, keep it dynamic. So it's like it's like watching the surface of Lake Michigan, you know, where it's just like it's always <laughs> kind of undulating and it's static, but like there's never a moment of rest within it. But right now, that's my choice. That's my favorite piece of music. I cannot wait to check that out. That sounds so cool. You'll have to let me know what you think. I, I'm really yeah, excited. Yeah, I will. Well, dude, thank you so much for coming on the show like i've been itching to have you on since we started this thing and it we finally found the the spot for it and like this was as fun as i could have hoped i want to just talk for a few more hours oh yeah man me too i had a blast this was amazing and you guys are doing terrific work i absolutely love this podcast oh thanks man yeah get it out there to all the the generation zers we need those oh i will yeah yeah hey (laughs) hey great planes check out adagio for things i'll 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 be plugging it as as much as i can (laughs) okay dude we'll talk soon all right man thank you greg for coming in to talk to us i had even more fun than usual making this episode of the show uh both in recording it and editing it everything it was kind of hard to believe looking back that we were talking over the phone quick bit of housekeeping as always if you enjoyed today's show please go on itunes and leave us a review they really really help get us a little bit more visible so if you like the show and want more people to know about it please go do that And of course, feel free to follow us on social media. And if you're feeling extra generous, please find us on Patreon and contribute what you can to keep this show going. If you want to learn more about Greg Simon and his work as a composer or a trumpeter or a teacher, uh, you can find out all kinds of things on his website, gregsimonmusic.com. There are events there that have links to all of his concerts and talks that he gives, um, so you can stay up to date with everything he's up to. Uh, In the very near future, if you happen to be in Nebraska, the UNL Symphony Orchestra is going to premiere Greg's newest orchestra piece, Promise Me You Won't Believe a Single Word. It's going to be at Kimball Recital Hall on October 6th, and that's in Lincoln, Nebraska. If in addition to Greg's music, you were also particularly interested in our little ranting about Joseph Campbell towards the end of the interview, uh, Greg is actually going to be giving a talk on using narrative to teach composition. 
Uh, and that'll be at the College Music Society's National Conference in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, towards the end of October, either the 23rd or 24th. Dates are yet to be decided. So keep an eye out for that if that is in your wheelhouse. Until next time, we're going to leave you with a recording of Greg's piece, Draw Me the Sun, as performed by Alarmal Sound. <laughs>